Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, June the 16th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. 21 years ago, the writer and journalist Susan McKay published Northern Protestants and Unsettled People, a portrait of Northern Irish Protestantism through the words of members of that community gathered in more than 60 interviews across the six counties. Now she's returned to the subject and to that format for her new book, Northern Protestants on Shifting Ground. And as we watch the day-to-day politics of Northern Ireland twist and turn in unpredictable ways right now, and we wait to see whether the Northern Assembly will elect a new first and deputy first minister, or whether we're going to have an early election in September, the book is an absolutely invaluable and insightful and deeply useful resource for anybody interested in the political present and the constitutional future of this island as a whole. Susan, many thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Hugh. Why did you come back to this format and this sort of portrait at this point? Was it a 20-year anniversary or did it just somehow feel that the time was right? It felt like the time was right because when I did the first book, uh, Northern Protestants and Unsettled People, it was just after the Good Friday Agreement. Some of the interviews were done uh, during the period running up to the referendum on the Good Friday Agreement. And uh, so now, 21 years on, uh, it was Brexit and it was the centenary of the Northern Ireland state and it was the impending new census, which will potentially show that there's a Catholic majority in Northern Ireland now overall for the first time. So there seem to be a lot of things coming together. And also just because I've been covering um, unionist politics, you know, in, in the intervening period, and I just felt that there was a change going on, there was a shift going on. And the actual title comes from a conversation that I had with the poet uh, Jean Blakeney, who comes from the border in County Fermanagh, or whose father comes from the border in County Fermanagh and was a customs officer. And Jean told me, to my surprise, that she had in 2017 um, voted for the DUP for the first time. Uh, because she said, I felt the ground shifting, unionism needed us needed to be steadied. And um, I thought that that was really interesting that somebody like her would have would have done that, you know, that there was a sense of panic. She described it as I was part of the panic surge that went to the DUP. And um, so I took the title from that. But in fact, as time went on, things became more and more unsteady and um, shifting and, uh, you know, things have blown up into really a full-scale crisis within unionism. It's a most extraordinary year uh, for the, sen- the supposed um, celebrations of the centenary. You know, there's, there's actually a, a feeling in the air that this could be the end of Northern Ireland as it's currently um, constituted. The book takes you all over Northern Ireland, every highway and byway, really, from the Paisleyite heartlands of Ballymoney and its regions to the glens of Antrim, to the city of Derry or Londonderry or whatever you're having yourself, to 
uh, kind of the grim, or at least it seemed grim to me, port of port of Larne, to the whole complexities of life in and around Belfast, and then as you say, to border communities along the borders of of, of Armagh and uh, and Tyrone and 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 Derry, or London Derry again, and it's such a broad canvas and it's so well painted that I found it. Um, both incredibly insightful, but also very difficult to get a handle on what's going on. And I haven't gone back yet and had a look at the the previous book, which I think would be a valuable exercise. For a sort of a helicopter view, what were the kind of the key changes that you've seen over the, those two decades in the, in the portrait that you paint of this community? Well, before I started, I would have thought that Northern Ireland had become a bit more settled because I think that the Good Friday Agreement did, to a degree, settle Northern Ireland. Certainly the borders ceased to be an inflamed area uh, because of the Good Friday Agreement and, and the delicate network of relationships that it established between North and South and East and West on these islands. But um, in terms of how things have changed, um, I think that the changes are being disrupted. Peace uh, had come to a degree. There was still a lot of discontent. I mean, the um, assembly had just been uh, suspended for three full years because of a breakdown of relations between Sinn Féin and the DUP. Um, and that was a lot to do with with attitudes and an absence of reconciliation. You know, I think what had become apparent was that the reconciliation aspect of the Good Friday Agreement had been tragically neglected, uh, although the political aspects had to some extent begun to be um, implemented. Um, the When I started doing the research for the book as well, the nurses' strike was on and there was a sense that working class people in Northern Ireland were really fed up being taken for granted. You know, I was hearing stories from people of, of nurses who were working full time. Um, they had family members doing their caring for their children and they were having to have recourse to food banks and borrowing money and so on. You know, there's really high levels of poverty in Northern Ireland, including among some working people. And the public was overwhelmingly behind the nurses in that strike and very angry with the politicians because they'd been three years without managing to find a way of, of uh, reconstituting Stormont. So all of that was happening at the time that I started to, to write the new book. So I did find people, there was a level of discontent that there possibly hadn't been uh, for some time. And it was an interesting time to catch people because they were beginning to think in different ways. You know. Poverty has always been, for example, pretty much taken for granted by a lot of people in Northern Ireland. But then people were beginning to get really angry about the fact that the politicians were still paying themselves while nurses had not been given parity with um, nurses and other medical staff in the rest of the UK. So it was kind of that moment when people were beginning to sort of fundamentally question the nature of society. And that turned out to be very interesting. Um, my first book I sort of arranged in terms of different areas in which particular things were prominent, you know, like I did Portadown and I did, spent a lot of time in Portadown because of the Drum Cree issue, which was very dominant in 1998-99. Um, this time around I did it geographically. I just started in Balamoni and worked my way around and went from north to south, east to west and into Mid-Ulster. And... Um, what emerged there was that there are still those different geographical 
uh, preoccupations. I mean, obviously, for example, you mentioned Lauren. Uh, Lauren is now a port, um, you know, a border town, which is extraordinary because it never would have wanted to see itself in that way. But I have to say there are some people in Lauren who think that this, this will present job opportunities. You know, it's, if it's going to be a, if it's going to be a, a border post, there will be some employment involved in that. Overall, what I felt was that people at the moment, the DUP is promoting a view of Northern Ireland that everybody is up in arms about the protocol to the Brexit agreement and that there is a sense of real communal anger, which is potentially going to manifest itself in, in violence, although the DUP is careful while saying that to say that, of course, it doesn't support violence. My sense was not of that. Um, I found, generally speaking, that people are not... I left the interviews fairly open. Um, I left it to people to decide themselves what were the issues that they would talk about. And hardly anybody chose to speak about the protocol. People are concerned about the crisis in the health service. They're, they're concerned about instability at Stormont. Um, they're concerned about the pandemic, obviously. They're concerned about what's going to happen to jobs when this is over. All of those kind of things. And I, I actually this time around decided that I was going to put into the foreground of the book some of the people who I call Lundies, you know, which is kind of a central theme of the book, that um, there are people who don't fit into the political mainstream, but who have who have a large contribution to make and are making that contribution. And just just for purposes of some of our listeners who maybe don't know who Lundy was, he's, his face or the face of his effigy, uh, very brightly covered, figures on the on the cover of the book. Who's Lundy? Yeah, the cover of the book I'm delighted with. It's it's from a photograph by the great uh, Derry photographer, uh, Trevor McBride, who, who does work, of course, for the Irish Times. He's a superb photographer and he's been working in Derry for many, many years, you know, since the Troubles and since the beginning of the, since the civil rights movement. And Lundy was the governor of Derry in 1689 uh, during the siege. And he felt that the city couldn't withstand a siege and the Jacobite forces were at the gates. Uh, the apprentice boys uh, thought otherwise and decided that they were going to close the gates. And hence, you know, we now have this sort of notion that uh, of no surrender, that we will not surrender. Lundy believed in compromise and therefore was deemed to have believed in surrender. And he was forced to flee the city. And um, from then on, really, um, anybody who in any way sort of questions unionist orthodoxy is regarded as a Lundy. And when I started the book, I kind of had a sense of that, but I was astonished at how true the sense turned out to be. I mean, even think about Foster, the um, just departed First Minister and, and leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, uh, she obviously saw the writing on the wall not long before she was um, cruelly ousted. And uh, she said the problem in unionism is that whenever there's a problem, we go looking for the Lundy. And that was said by so many people in the course of the thing, you know, people, even the head of the Orange Order at one point referred to the unfortunate tendency in unionism of going looking for a Lundy. And in my first book on this theme, Northern Protestants, I interviewed the, um, the painter Dermot Seymour, and he talked about being a Lundy as being 
you know, if anybody knows his paintings, there's a lot of like headless figures in them. And I asked him about why the headless figures. And he said, because being a Protestant in Northern Ireland is, is like being someone whose neck was twisted so hard that their head was taken off because you might think something dangerous, you know, you might use your imagination. And he he talked about how this whole, whole sort of black and white binary way of looking at things was so oppressive in Northern Ireland. And, and I loved the line where he said, um, we're far too literal. Why not call a spade a frog? <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that, that sort of sense of the breaking down of binaries was very much in my mind when I was doing this book. You know, in gender terms, there, there are a lot of LGBTQ people in the book. Um, there are lots of other people who are not voters within the traditional unionist system, but many of many of them pro-union people. So it's it's about getting away from that sort of notion of the two communities, you know, locked together in eternal combat. It's a much more diverse and interesting society in the North. And this is just the Protestant part of, of the community. I'm sure that, you know, someone could write a very interesting book about what has happened within what used to be the monolith of the Catholic Nationalist Republican community. The thing about Lundy is that every December in Derry, uh, the effigy of Lundy is burned in front of a crowd of people who support the Apprentice Boys of Derry Association. And it is the Apprentice Boys of Derry, in case anybody's concerned about me using that term rather than London Derry. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, the Apprentice Boys burn Lundy. And it's, it's always traditionally been a very fierce sort of festival, which is somewhat dreaded by people who aren't involved in the Apprentice Boys movement. But of late, and this is something I write about in the book, there has been years and years of, of patient negotiation and talks between the Apprentice Boys and the nationalist and Republican communities in Derry to try to ensure that the Apprentice Boys uh, parade could remain part of the fabric of the cultural fabric of Derry, but cease to be contentious. And I think it's a real sign of hope that that has actually happened Last, not last year, but the year before, I went to the Lundy Parade, and um, it was fairly good natured. If you think, if you think that the burning of an effigy can ever be good natured, <laughs> but it wasn't frightening the way it used to be. In light of that, is there hope that Lundyism, which seems to be has been a kind of a toxic strain in Protestant or Unionist or Loyalist politics, what you actually call the community, of course, is a whole is a whole other question too, but that Lundyism has prevented movement of many sorts. And uh, among other things, it's, it seems to me to have prevented the articulation of what you might call a positive definition of unionism as opposed to a negative one. Peter Robinson made some noises about that towards the end of his leadership of the DUP, but there's not a huge sign of it now, certainly in the DUP, maybe from the uh, Ulster Unionist Party under its new leadership. Yeah, I think it has really impoverished unionism because that, like, unionism never... Uh, lays claim to um, people who are imaginative, you know, um, like I think that and it has it has led to this sort of myth, for example, that there are there are no Protestant artists, there are no Protestant musicians, there are no Protestant poets. You know, it has narrowed because they don't claim them. They don't say he's one of us because he may have said something that is in some way insulting to the notion of the rigid, upright um, unionist who has a strict set of beliefs. Um, so Lundyism, I mean, Peter Robinson is a strange case because 
what seems to happen within unionism is that, and you've seen it already with Arlene Foster, you know, suddenly in the last couple of weeks, we're seeing this woman who laughs and sings and talks about being good neighbours and that we have to go forward together as a joined community and so on. And you think, where was this woman during her 20 years in unionist politics? And it's been the same with Peter Robinson. I think he has, to my mind, unconvincingly started to present himself as this intellectual. He writes excruciatingly bad articles in the newsletter and is treated as some sort of oracle because he occasionally says something which indicates that he knows that there are other people out there. You know, for example, he has um, talked about the need for people to start thinking about the constitutional future of Northern Ireland. And he used that metaphor of, um, you know, I don't take out house insurance because I think my house is going to burn down. But I do take out house insurance. Um, It's not a beautiful uh, metaphor, but it is um, what we got. And um, so, yeah, I think that people... So there's a the fifty percent of people in Northern Ireland don't vote, and a large proportion of those are a growing proportion of those are young Protestant people um, who are pro union, but who absolutely cannot identify with um, political unionism. Now that, as you mentioned, is potentially going to change because Doug Beatty, who has just taken over as the leader of the Ulster Unionist Party. Um, appears to have decided that he is going to make the party, uh, for example, uh, significantly visibly LGBTQ friendly. And uh, he has taken on uh, Julianne Cor Johnson, for example, who's a former progressive unionist party councillor. Um, she's a young gay married woman who is very tuned into the needs of working class communities and uh, very anti-austerity and and those kind of issues. So he is taking the Unionist Party in that direction, but he's very late. You know, the Ulster Unionist Party has fallen very, very far from its peak when it was the dominant party. It was uh, eclipsed by the um, DUP very soon after the Good Friday Agreement, and it's been in free fall ever since. So Doug Beattie has taken over a party which he's going to have to let get smaller before he can start to build it bigger. And it may be a bit late in the day for that, um, but we'll we'll see about that. The DUP, on the other hand, under Edwin Poots's leadership, and and if it gets Paul Given as First Minister, is resolutely set, to my mind, and plunging right back to the 17th century, you know, bypassing all that happened along the way. You know, it's, it's, it's just absolutely turning trying to turn back to the old days and it so is not going to work because Northern Ireland has become a sophisticated mixed community and they're just not going to be able to go back to the days where you can completely ignore the needs of other people and Poots's sort of aggressive um, confrontational style is utterly contrary to everything that was um, anticipated in the Good Friday Agreement. What are we to make of this kind of tilt towards culture wars over the last few years? It's kind of come as a bit of a a surprise to me that, I mean, as you say, there are many LGBTQ plus voices in in your book and the whole issue of abortion, which is still which is still running on and, and, and abortion rights. And these are obviously being foregrounded by the by the incoming DUP leadership. In some ways, it seems like one of those things that Northern Ireland is is it really is a place apart. In other ways, 
it seems like somehow American culture wars are being imported into this small corner of an island off, off the coast of Europe. And how did that come about? Well, I think one of the one of the best things that has happened in terms of saving Northern Ireland from heading in that direction is the defeat of Trump in the US, because some of the, the wilder fringes of the DUP, like Sammy Wilson and Ian Paisley Jr., who are wilder fringes and right in the centre of the DUP, unfortunately, they were big Trump supporters. And um, I think that Trump's sort of gross neglect of and and deliberate and ostentatious trampling on human rights uh, was setting a very, very poor example internationally, which uh, elements in Northern Ireland would have been only too happy to adopt. So I think that 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 is really helpful that that has happened. But one of the, the cultural things that has happened is that people in Northern Ireland, like people in the Republic, have become much more empathetic towards difference and, you know, a lot of a lot of people in the North now look to the Republic and think it's really not as bad as it used to be. It used to be a Catholic state. It used to be dominated by the Catholic Church. But now they've got the right to abortion. They've got same sex marriage, whereas us in the North, we haven't. And it's worth noting that even though Westminster uh, brought in legislation on same sex marriage and abortion, we still don't have abortion rights in the North because Robin Swan the very popular Ulster Unionist Party health minister has not uh, signed in the necessary um, service provision. So again, you know, that indicates that um, Doug Beattie is going to have a bit of a struggle um, in changing the culture of the party to allow for that. So if that's what you mean by, by culture wars, I think that that is the case. And that's why there's been a drift towards alliance among uh, liberal young Protestants, because alliance defines itself as other, you know, though in the North you have to be uh, unionist, nationalist or other, and alliance contains people who are unionist, contains people who are nationalist, it contains people who are Republican, and it contains people who are none of those things. So it's ecumenical on the constitutional issue. But um, Doug Beattie is now also competing for that ground. There's also the Greens, there's people before profit, um, you know, there, there are other parties there that are taking young voters. One of the most interesting um, things that came up in the interviews that I did with younger people was I was talking to the um, brilliant young playwright, Stacey Gregg, who has recently returned to live in Northern Ireland and do some work. And she talked about how young people in Northern Ireland, as elsewhere, are digital natives, you know, they're getting, their imaginations are being fed by sources that were never available to their parents or their grandparents, you know, and you see that in the way that young people are involved in global movements, particularly, say, for example, the, the climate justice movement, you know, they're, they're much more interested in that kind of thing. And certainly one of the things that I found really brilliant about the way the North is now that is that a lot of younger people have no idea whether their friends are Catholic or Protestant. You know, I just found that a revelation. And the biggest and best revelation of all was that I was to some degree becoming one of those people. Um, because I, I tell the story in the book about how I had um, been friends with, not really close friends with, but I was friendly with Lyra McKee and in, in professional contact with her for quite some time before she said something which made me think, oh, Lyra must be from a Catholic background. And it occurred to me that I had 
probably previously assumed that she was from a Protestant background uh, because I would have thought of McKee as being a, a Protestant name, but it hadn't really concerned me enough to think it through. You know, and people of my generation who grew up during the Troubles, we always did that. Even if we didn't mean any harm by it, you would still, when you met a person, you'd think, hmm, McKee, you know, would that be a Catholic or a Protestant McKee? What did she say her first name was? And where did she say her daddy worked? And people would ask this series of questions, you know, just to try to place the other person. And it's a really fantastic um, thing that has happened that that's no longer happening to the same extent. But unfortunately, at the moment, there's a lot of polarisation going on and there's a concerted effort, I think, by the DUP to reassert, you know, the sort of um, the ethnic huddle of the Protestant Unionist Loyalist PUL community. You know, when in his inaugural speech as leader of the DUP, he said, History tells us that when unionism's back is against the wall, it will come out fighting. And I thought, how depressing, you know, that notion that we have to go back to that, you know, division of people up into, you know, fighting their own corner in that way. But I really don't think it's going to wash with people. I mean, you're seeing people leaving the DUP um, over this. There are people leaving saying that we just don't want this kind of politics anymore. We do watch. Um, we've watched some of the the violence on the streets over the last over the last while, and uh, you've written about that both in the Irish Times and you touch upon it in the book. Although I think the book probably went to press before some of the the, the incidents that we've seen. You do paint a very bleak picture of life in some of these working class Protestant areas in Northern Ireland and the the intimidation and the drug dealing and the criminality of so-called loyalist gangs and the sway that they hold over some of these areas. In some ways, the kind of the, the social deprivation you describe is not particular or peculiar to Northern Ireland, but it has this peculiar political overlay through it as well. Is it purely really just gangsterism now, or is there a political, an actual political element to that that we should be concerned about? We very much need to be concerned about it because I think, you know, for many years now, loyalist paramilitarism has essentially become gangsterism. It's a long time since it talked in terms of um, for God and Ulster. You know, it's it's really not been like that. It's it's maintained its structures, and it would appear to have maintained, um, you know, a lot of the sort of uh, access to to an, an an a level of weaponry. We're not clear how much it has, but. Um, it it has it has a sort of militaristic structure, and that still seems to talk in terms of brigadiers and so on. But it is more a network of people controlling working class areas. And in the book, I have interviews with um, a number of, of women in particular who've been impacted by that. Um, one woman who's actually a friend of mine talks about how um, her son, who was a talented young footballer. Uh, but a person of of some fragility, as many brilliant people obviously are, um, he got caught up in um, loyalist paramilitarism simply by asking someone. There had been some incident in in their area which had affected them, and he had spoken to someone who said, "Oh, I'll sort it out for you." And thereafter, their family was persecuted by that particular loyalist faction. And he got dragged into 
drug dealing, uh, which he was incapable of doing because by that stage he'd become a drug addict. Um, he ceased to be able to be a good footballer. Um, he was in debt. He was stealing from her. He sold her car. She was, con- and he en- he ended up, you know, psychotic in mental hospital. She was concerned that he would attempt suicide. And meanwhile, she was desperately trying to negotiate with these people who everybody knew who they were. You know, she was going to them and saying, look, you don't understand. This isn't just a debt. My son is in in hospital. You know, he could die. You've got to take this pressure off him. And they just said business is business, you know, and that's going on all over the place. It's not in any way exaggerated. Um, the main people in my book who chose not to give their full names and addresses in, or their, their names and the places that they lived in the book are women from loyalist paramilitary areas. You know, they just felt the level of hassle that they would get. It's not that they feared being shot. It's that they feared, you know, just, you know, your car getting vandalized, your windows being broken, just hassle, you know, a level of hassle that is not, um, not a, good way to live. So it seems to me that the riots of April are actually, I did get those those into the book. I, I interviewed a young lad who I also interviewed in the Irish Times, um, a fellow that I called Kyle. And I think he was very typical of the young people who featured in those riots in April. Uh, some of them were quite vulnerable young men who have al- already at a very young age got significant drink or drug problems. Many of them come from quite uh, difficult family situations and quite impoverished backgrounds, and they were ripe for the picking. And I do think it's one of the things we really need to start talking about in relation to Northern Ireland is radicalisation and grooming of of young people, because we saw it in we've seen it in the dissident Republican um, community as well. Although it seems bizarre to use a benign word like community in relation to these things, but um, there are dissident Republicans who are capitalising on um, despair and dairy to to create young people who believe in a really sort of outmoded attitude to political violence. And you saw the killing of Larry McKee happen as a result of that. Um, apparently, the person who actually pulled the trigger on the gun that killed Lyra was probably about 18 years old, you know. Um, so you're seeing that in the loyalist community as well. And I think what those riots represented was months and months of people stirring. Carl Frampton, the, the boxer, actually, uh, I saw him, he took part in a, an anti-sectarianism online rally uh, around April. And he said, um, People are stirring the pot again and young people are getting caught up. And he talked about how in his youth in Tigers Bay in North Belfast, he had rioted as well, but he had had this brilliant talent which carried him out of that and away and into a good life. But an awful lot of young people just get trapped and then these people are there and they're they're spotting young people who they think have potential and they are feeding them a lot of old sectarian nonsense, which is then being spouted. But I think the good thing was that those riots were very small and they petered out very, very quickly. Um, Anybody who has ever watched rioting in the North or been there or been even part of riots in the North knows that riots have energy levels 
And there was very little energy in those riots. They weren't coming from a mass communal anger. They were being orchestrated by men who, to my mind, have as an agenda the old, you know, the Good Friday Agreement hasn't worked. Let's get rid of it. This power sharing lark just has disadvantaged Protestants. There's a lot of what I've heard described as community propaganda these days, you know, this notion that there's two-tier policing, that Protestants now need their civil rights, it's not Catholics anymore. You know, this culture of grievance, which takes root so quickly within the unionist community. And it's not true. I mean, there are issues about policing. There are definitely issues about um, poverty, but they are not confined to the um, unionist community by any means. There is a sense, though, in the book that alongside what you've just described there, there is a sense among some of the people you talk to that Protestant communities are less cohesive and the quality of their political leadership is less good, really, than than what they're getting and that they're sort of they're they're climbing up a hill and that they're losing a race, really. Yeah, and the metaphor of climbing up a hill is, is very relevant because a lot of people use that thing of, you know, the grand old Duke of York notion of Paisley as somebody who led his people up to the top of the hill and then just abandoned them. And that is what a lot of, of more cynical um, working class Protestant people will say, is that they, they don't want another generation to be uh, led up a hill and then just left there and told to fight it out. You know, um, the a lot of, of people talked to me about, and they talked about to me about this in the first book as well, about this, the way that um, in Catholic communities you you have this, there's one church, uh, there's the GAA, you know, there's Irish language, um, there's often a big community type association. Um, there are public meetings sometimes to discuss issues of of public concern. You don't really get those kind of structures within. Protestant communities. There's a bit of a change happening in that with the likes of the London Derry Band Forum, Bands Forum in Derry. But in general, and I've seen this as a, as a reporter, you know, I've gone to meetings in, in towns and villages all over Northern Ireland over the years, and you often find very interesting um, community discussion going on. But uh, SDLP politicians will be there, Sinn Féin politicians will be there, Alliance will be there. But invitations will have been issued to unionist politicians and they won't have come, you know. And that and there's, there's also a complaint from Protestant people that um, whereas, you know, if you look at someone like Martin McGuinness, he continued to live in the bog side near where he grew up um, throughout his political career and on, until his death. Whereas unionists tend to, as soon as you get on a bit in life, you leave your working class community behind you and you go elsewhere and you live in a middle class area. And quite a number of people talked to me about that, about, uh, you know, one woman talked about how, um, you know, her local minister would walk his dog every day uh, through his area, but he never, ever took the turn down into her estate. You know, he would walk across the road at the top, but he would never walk through her area you know, even though there were big greens there and everything where everybody else walked their dogs, you know, but just this sort of sense of um, Mark Langhammer, who's a formerly a Labour councillor in North Belfast, spoke very interestingly about this. He talked about when he was a councillor, 
he said that um, if a water main burst in a in a Catholic area, you know, uh, after a while he might have someone coming to him and saying, "Look, we tried to fix that. We got in brushes, we got pipes in, uh, we we tried the we tried and got to get a contractor in. Uh, we got so and so. We did this. We did that. Uh, but it didn't work. Can you see if you can get something done?" Whereas he said in the Protestant part of his community, he would uh, he would get a call the minute the pipe bursts, sort of saying, "What the fuck is the council doing about this burst pipe?" You know, there's there is it's strange because Protestants have this sort of notion of themselves as being very self reliant and very resilient and very capable, but there is a dependency issue there. There's this sort of thing of you were looked after, and it does go back to. You know, the old days when, you know, if your father had a job in the shipyard, he would get you a job in the shipyard. This is men, of course, um, you know, and there was a there was a thing that if you kept in your place, you would be looked after. And the Orange Order very much promoted that sort of notion of you didn't challenge your betters, but your betters would give you what you needed. And my own grandfather would have been a case in point of that, you know, a working class man who never thought to challenge anything that the Ulster Unionists, who then were the dominant party, did, you know, he would just assume, well, you know, I got a council house because I went to the Orange Order and they went to the council and they got me a house and that's all I need, you know. And that model, the the residual sense of entitlement is still there in the Protestant community in parts of it. And I don't say that to be demeaning of people. And I think that's something that you know, again, Stacey Gregg talks about she doesn't, she's from a working class uh, loyalist community, but she hates the ease with which people mock that community, you know, but she does recognise that there is this, you know, residual sense of entitlement that is not serving people well, because it's not working anymore, but it does leave people that they're not sort of able to uh, to do things for themselves. But on that subject, you know, you do still... In say, I think people reading the book will notice, um, say in North Antrim, uh, you know, around Ballymoney and Ballycastle, uh, there's a sort of a Presbyterian and Church of Ireland sort of thing there of, you know, I'll paddle my own canoe. Nobody's going to tell me what to think. I'll do what I think is best. You know, there is that very much that kind of personal relationship with God and morality that makes people make their own decisions and so on. So there's there's pockets of that. But in the big sort of formerly industrial parts of, of Belfast, you, you very much see that. And I was sad to hear um, Billy Hutchinson, who was formerly a um, MLA for um, the Progressive Unionist Party when it was led by David Irvine, and who went on to be a leader of that party himself. But he was on a, some, he took part in a committee that I was on the other day, and he talked about the old complaints, you know, that somebody walks out of the sh- uh, their house on the Shankill Road and they see dereliction and they see factories that aren't in use anymore and they see um, areas of waste ground and rubble and so on. And then they look on a, into the falls and they see swanky buildings and all the rest of it and, uh, you know, lots of money being invested in things. And first of all, it isn't really true. But second, it has long established that if you want to get your community off its knees and get monies and so on to do these things, you've got to work for it. You know, people 
people have got money to build big community centres and things because they've applied for the money. You know, they've they've gone looking for investment and so on. And if you've got community representatives who are just going to sit and say, Lemons get everything and we get nothing, what good is that going to do anybody in their community? So I wonder then, and this is a, a last question, but it's also a big one, I'm, I, I'm afraid. I mean, listening to all of that and then reading the, you know, the really vast and variegated tapestry of different life experiences which you 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 document in the book including it should be said the 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 long-term scarring caused by the effects the direct effects of the violence of the troubles on many of the of the older participants uh, in the book i want to we look ahead for a moment just set aside the northern ireland protocol i mentioned the impending assembly election at the at the top of the podcast it is highly possible, if not likely, that Michelle O'Neill will be the first minister after the next election through a combination of demographic change and a fragmentation of the of the Protestant vote. We know from polls in the Republic that Sinn Féin are very well placed to lead the government in Dublin after the next general election here, that parties committed to moving as quickly as possible towards a referendum on Irish unity what would that series of processes, including having a Sinn Féin First Minister in Northern Ireland on the centenary of its of its founding, even though that is largely symbolic in terms of what power involves, what effect would those sort of changes, and I suppose they would be seen by many of the people in your book as threats, have upon the community? Well, first of all, Hugh, to, to go back just briefly to that you mentioned there about legacy, and, and I should say it is hugely important. You know, there, there are people in the book like the Beach Sisters, whose parents were killed in the Enniskillen bomb. And they are so angry and hurt by what has happened over the years. And that is an undertow in the North, which shouldn't be ignored. You know, the, the neglect of the legacy issues is, is shocking. Um, likewise, Alec Bunting, who was in, who's one of the injured, who are still waiting for their pension all these years later. Unionism is not in any way prepared to be the minority community. But if you look at, I mean, it, it shouldn't be a terrifying prospect. And it's a bit worrying to see the extent to which unionists are unprepared for the notion of Sinn Féin having the first ministership, because, you know, they don't seem to sort of realise that that's the position that the nationalist community has accepted as part of the Good Friday Agreement, you know, for the last 20 years since the Good Friday Agreement. But um, if you look at somewhere like Derry, I mentioned earlier, you know, Derry is a city where um, in the earliest days of the state, it was gerrymandered so that unionists would have dominance, even though there was a nationalist majority. But nowadays, um, Derry is a city in which uh, the nationalist community is very much the bigger community. The council is more nationalist than unionist. Um, we've got the apprentice boys issue that we spoke about earlier and it works, you know, it, it's not, Protestants have not found that their rights have been trampled on. They haven't found that they've been banished out of the city and told to go to the Republic or, or t- told to go back to the mainland or whatever. And I think that there, there really does need to be a lot of work by progressive uh, unionist forces to encourage people to feel that Northern Ireland is not going to cease to be their home just because uh, there is a First Minister who is from Sinn Féin. It should also be said, of course, that there are people within Sinn Féin who would need to think twice before they speak. 
because some people do come out with these quite sectarian comments which alienate Protestants and, and make them feel afraid of the notion of um, a future with Sinn Féin as First Minister. First and Deputy First Ministers, I think, are very ill-named. I mean, it is meant to be, and there's meant to be equal status between the First and Deputy First Ministers. I mean, Paisley Senior took to calling Martin McGuinness my deputy, which was accepted with good humour by McGuinness because they seemed to have a very good personal relationship. But it isn't like that. It's it's meant to be that they, they are equal. But I think a very interesting thing could potentially happen, which is that if in the next elections Alliance do spectacularly well and the DUP do spectacularly badly, um, I don't know what would happen. I don't think anybody really knows what would happen in terms of the Good Friday Agreement because it says that the First and Deputy First Ministers have to be from the um, the two communities. You know, it is based on the two community model. So I don't know what would happen in that instance, you know, if if the if the person who was leading Alliance, which could be Naomi Long, who's an incredibly capable Northern politician, um, would she think that she should be um, Deputy First Minister? And the St Andrews Agreement would suggest otherwise, because it talks about the largest party from the largest denomination. But that would mean that Alliance had gained a position which they were not able to take up. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot that's very up in the air in the North at the moment. But I should say that I found quite a lot of people were surprisingly unthreatened by the prospect of a border poll. You know, in fact, there were quite a number of people who weren't even particularly perturbed at the notion that there might one day be unity uh, in Ireland of some kind. And um, even people within the DUP took that view. You know, that Sammy Douglas, who is a former MLA for the DUP and a big fan of, of Peter Robinson. He um, said that uh, he thought that uh, uni- the prospect of United Ireland was like the prospect of death. You know, uh, it was the process of getting to it that might be bad, but actually achieving it might not be so bad at all. And he said he could actually imagine himself in a United Ireland. And that's a person within the DUP. And I met quite a lot of people like that who would sort of say, well, there's no harm on a border poll. I'm going to vote for the union. I think that side is going to win. But if um, a majority goes for United Ireland, why would I fear that? Because that's democracy. I mean, the majority of unionists are Democrats and they would respect the outcome of, of any ballot as they accepted the outcome of the Good Friday Agreement, even though lots of them didn't agree with it. Northern Protestants on Shifting Ground is published by the Blackstaff Press and it's in bookshops now. Thanks very much to Susan McKay for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer Declan Conlon, our engineer JJ Vernon. We're going to be back very soon indeed, but do remember you can mail us with your thoughts and questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.